Nadine Burke Harris, who is, I don't know whether she's still the Surgeon General of California, but she researched about 10, 15 years ago, looking at adverse childhood events, really bad, traumatic events that could happen to a child that would have a long-term impact on their health. And if they were exposed to any of those events in the first 1,000 days, it had a lifelong impact. And that to us as health professionals, what that looks like is if you do not protect children and identify adverse events early on, it gives them a lifelong higher risk of inflammatory disorders, autoimmune disorders. It triggers latent genes like giving you type 2 diabetes earlier. It's stress, isn't it? It's just the impact Mm. of stress on your body. But then it keeps genetically encoding for the rest of your life. So by investing and funding and concentrating on the first 1,000 days, you could save so much money. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Su, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Welcome to this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome. We've got Dr. Carmen Basu, one of the paediatricians with Milk and Honey Paediatrics. And we're going to talk about child protection and we're going to talk about paediatrics in both the public and the private sphere and why we've got private practice. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm really interested to hear about your story because I understand that you, you've come from the UK, you did a lot of your training over there and you've come and had to retrain a bit here in New Zealand and you spent some time in child protection. So tell us a bit about yourself. Okay. I guess I should preface this with it. It is quite a sad story as to why I ended up here, but it does give you an idea of how passionate I was about child protection. I came to New Zealand from the UK probably 12 12 years ago. And I came because I wanted to pursue a career in child protection. And I had done all, I'd almost completed my pediatric training in the UK. And I came over with the thought that I would do a fellowship in child protection at Starship Hospital. And I'd applied to various places around the world, actually. And I'd looked for the various rock stars and child protection. And I'd looked at Dr. Bruce Perry, who ran the Trauma Institute in the US, and people who were making a name for themselves in this area and talking about childhood trauma and how it impacts on your physical health. But I couldn't train in the States. And in the end, I was just very drawn to New Zealand. I was offered a fellowship at Pua Ruduho, which is the Child Protective Services at Starship Hospital. And through a roundabout way, I eventually got there. It took about a year. And I then was told when I got there that if I wanted to become a consultant there, which they desperately needed, my UK training didn't count. And they'd count maybe six months of my seven-year training. Oh, my goodness. 
So I was told to do all of my training again and all of my exams. And Why I, made you want to stay then? Could you not want to just go back to the UK? Yeah. So I wanted to stay because it was a new type of system over here. And the reason I felt so passionately that I wanted to dedicate my whole pediatric career to child protection is because a year prior to me coming, I had been married and happy in the UK. And then my husband died by suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. And I knew that the contributing factor to that, and, and it was even mentioned in the inquest which took place, was his childhood abuse. And so I felt that my legacy to him, his name was Luke, my legacy to Luke was to dedicate my career at finding early interventions to try and disrupt that path that can be created into adulthood where no matter how amazing your life is as an adult, you're still imprinted with that trauma if it happened very early on in life. So I felt very passionate about it because it was a lived experience or not necessarily my lived experience, but it had a traumatic impact on me. And I didn't want to see more people growing up like Luke who hadn't had any intervention in childhood. And how did you find your child protection training here in New Zealand? I mean, in terms of the training and the way the courses were set up, it was excellent. And particularly the focus around childhood sexual abuse, that was incredible. The way it was, it's compulsory almost for pediatricians when you're training that you have to have done the MedSAC course, which looks at that. And now other courses have been developed, which look at physical abuse and the impact. So in terms of the didactic training, Training, it was really good and the exposure to children who've been abused. What are the main things that you've learned about like child sexual abuse and all forms of child abuse really? What are the things that the general public probably don't really understand? That it's so common. When they looked at a study at the University of Otago, and this is many years ago now, and they asked 15-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls, have you had any unwanted sexual contact? one in five told strange researchers who they'd never met before that they had. So we estimate that the numbers are much higher because what we do know about childhood sexual abuse is that it takes many years to process and even be able to disclose. So in that setting, it was one in five. It looks like it's going to be about one in three if we're going to look at what we're seeing on the front line. That we know has a direct impact on your health later on, both your physical and your mental well-being. And it crosses all demographics. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is, whether you were born rich or poor, it affects and penetrates every aspect of society. And I think as pediatricians, probably what I learned is we didn't, we don't talk about it as much. And as a pediatrician or as a parent or as a teacher, just a member of society, what, what can we do to improve that? Education and having conversations around it. I think New Zealand does have a reputation, certainly with violence, of minimising violence, minimising the impact of it and glorifying it in certain contexts. And I think with sexual abuse, there aren't enough conversations being had around it early enough. And I think there are lots of urban myths that probably need to be punctured. So, for example, it, that it's more likely to be a stranger that abuses your child. It's actually more 
likely to be somebody close to you. And talking about how you create an environment where children can be safe to disclose. I don't think we educate people enough. We don't educate parents. It's difficult to educate early childhood centres because they're so separate. It's difficult to educate community health professionals. How do you actually make that space available for your child to come to you yeah. and tell you about that kind of stuff? What do you, how do you do that? A lot of it is not about direct questioning. So I think, again, that's a myth that you don't ever question a child around specifics, around did somebody touch you, what did they do, because we project as adults. It's about creating an environment whereby all conversations are okay and that there's nothing that they can't bring to you and talk to you about. And the way you do that is, A, you role model that all the time, you don't bring shame to any body part. And it can be simple things like as a parent. I think probably one of the commonest things I see as a paediatric doctor, and you may have seen it as well, is the lack of conversation around, say, childhood masturbation or self-gratification. If we normalise that a bit more, because we know that can happen from 18 months old, it's a way of exploring your body, it's a way of bringing pleasure to yourself... If we encourage parents to have open conversations with their children around that and say, okay, you know, what you're doing, it feels really good, but it shouldn't be done in front of people. It's like going to the toilet. So you find a private place to do that and you close the door and you let us know that you want some private time. You don't let anybody help or assist you because it's very special and you create positivity around children's bodies and you talk to them about what's happening with their body and you do that regularly and you talk to them about your body when you're naked if they're asking questions if it's appropriate. And that way children know, okay, Mum and dad or mum and mum or mum, dad and dad, they seem really happy talking about their body and talking about stuff to do with their body. If somebody does something to me that they're mentioning, I will talk to them about it because they've made that safe and they've made that okay. So it's not a one moment conversation. It's about creating a culture and an environment where it's okay to talk about everything. Yeah. And I guess the other part, I guess, when children are a little bit older as well, is talking about consent as yeah. well, that actually you are in charge of your own body and that no one else can do anything. That's, yeah. that's right. My body, my rules yeah. is another good conversation to have. So a common thing when I was growing up is my mum would say, oh, here's auntie, give auntie a kiss, give auntie a hug. And it's about giving children choices around how you want to connect with people. Absolutely. Because so, I feel like yeah. even for me, like when I've got other people's like my friend's kids or whatever, I'll be like, oh, I want a hug. And then yes. they'll be like, no. And I'll be like, okay, yes. <laughs> that's fine. Your body, yes. your rules. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Just respecting, be like, well, okay. Yeah, and even in that brief interaction, you saying that, that makes them feel much more confident to stand up for themselves. Absolutely, yeah. 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 With your journey with child protection, what things have you learned about the current system that we have in New Zealand? Because I guess mm. we had Child Youth and Family, which was rebranded to Oranga Tamariki, and I'm mm. sure that you had a lot of interactions with those services mm. within the form of child protection. I personally haven't had lots of interactions with Oranga Tamariki through my work or my personal life or anything like that. But the feeling that I get is that 
if there's a mention of Oranga Tamareke, there's a sort of like a shadow that comes over families and stuff because they're like, are they going to take my children, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It feels it's like, – I know that there are a lot of people who probably working in Oranga Tamareke who probably have really good intentions, but I think that the system is so broken, it feels mm. like it's much more punitive than it is yeah. supportive. And I think in health we love to talk about Oranga Tamariki when it comes to child protection because it deflects away from our role in child protection, which is what I always like to focus on because I have so many thoughts about New Zealand's approach to child protection. None of it makes sense to me in terms of how we approach it as a health service. Many people won't know this, but our current service, and definitely in Tamaki Makoto, is modelled on an American system, so a centralised American system. And for those of you that don't know, America, out of all the OECD countries in the world, has the worst rates of childhood death associated with inflicted injury and child abuse in the world. Why we are looking at a country that has consistently never managed to reduce its morbidity and mortality when it comes to childhood injury and even sexual abuse, I don't know. But we just keep pushing the system of centralising everything into one building or having certain specialists that deal with it. And instead, I think we should be looking at countries who have had bad rates in the past but improved it and look at their measures. Now, I'm not really one for championing the UK, despite my posh, plummy accent. But in this one aspect, the UK definitely got something right. So approximately 25 years ago, there was a famous death in the UK, a little girl called Victoria Climbier. And she was horrifically abused. There are lots of parallels to Victoria Climbier when we look at the New Zealand version, which was James Fakaruduho, in terms of failures of services and things like that. And so what happened in the UK is there was a big independent report into her death. It was called the Laming Report. And lots of recommendations were made after that report. And one of them was that child protection needed to come up with community solutions to help improve a child's chances of survival and a child's chances of thriving if they had been exposed to abuse or had risk factors around abuse. And what that means in the UK is if you identify those children The people that sit around the table and discuss it are your local counsellors, your local politician, they have skin in the game, education, health, social services, the police. And there's five or six people that sit around the table and come up with an individualised community plan that protects that child. And each person is legally liable. Each agency is legally liable and legally responsible. And that manoeuvre on its own by making communities come up with solutions and local people that were heads of the main agencies that were involved in that child's life, that reduced child protection, child morbidity and mortality related to inflicted abuse. And that's what I want to see here in New Zealand. I want to see us devolve this to communities. And I think Māori agencies have been calling for this for years. Give it back to our communities. Let us come up with the solutions and give it teeth. And I just don't see that happening 
Because I feel like in the few cases that I have had where I'm like, oh, maybe I need to get Orangatamariki involved or this kid has had an open case or whatever. Mm. It's usually after hours because it's usually I'm working in the emergency department and you call up the hotline and it's just somebody and then they're like, okay, I'll look them up. And then that child just becomes just a number. Yeah. And you don't know who's responsible, who's got accountability. Yeah. So what you're talking about there is the difficulty in sharing information and coming up with a shared plan. And that was identified in the UK and it's been identified here multiple times after multiple deaths related to abuse, that we are poor at sharing information. And lots of easy examples of this, and you will have definitely experienced this in your paediatric training. So for example, say I want information on a five-week-old baby who's been born in a birthing unit who has come into ED unwell. I cannot access the midwife's notes. I cannot access the birthing unit notes. I cannot access the GP's notes. I cannot access Oranga Tamariki's notes. I don't know if there's been police involvement. I don't know if there's other children in the house. None of our systems, none of our IT systems talk to each other. <laughs> I could go on about that. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it's a barrier. It's an obstacle. I cannot come up with an overview of this child at all. And it takes days and weeks. You all have done this ringing around. Mm -hmm. Who's the professional involved? Oh, it's not this midwife. It was another midwife. It's not this social worker. It's another social worker. It takes hours and hours of our time. It's inefficient. And because I think I remember learning on this course with you as well, is that (laughs) a lot of these kids who end up abused or die of inflicted abuse, they've had multiple contacts with health. That's just Mm. one of the consequences, the fact that we can't get an easy picture. Let's say they're out of town in a different city from where they live. They're going to have nothing. Nothing. Sometimes, I think sometimes there's like a, is there a national alert sometimes of child protection? There is a system called the National Child Protection Alert System, which actually I did lots of research into, but it is, it is flawed and it doesn't give you necessarily all of the immediate information that you need on a child who has never come into contact with any of these services. So that five-week-old baby that I'm talking about, if that baby has come in with a head injury, that might be their first point of contact. They may never have met Oranga Tamaliki before. Their siblings might have done, or they may never have done, in which case the child protection alert system wouldn't apply to them. So there's just no way. There's no way of finding out that information unless you're jumping through hoops. And this becomes a barrier for doctors. And I think that's why doctors or pediatricians and GPs take a little bit of a back step and a big deep breath when we look at a possible child protection case, because we know it's going to take hours of our time. And the health system is so under pressure to see as many people as possible, to try and be seen to be efficient. And we know that child protection cases slow us down. It can take three hours to get through all of this work. And in three hours, how many patients could you see in ED? So it's an inefficient system. It just needs to be looked at again. So I want to bring it back to what you were saying about the community multidisciplinary team approach mm-hmm. to child protection. What kind of like interventions 
could they do? Could they come up with kind of thing for a family with children who are at risk? Yeah. So I feel like I say this every day of my professional career, but there is never going to be a one size fits all approach. And I and that those are the things I hate. I hate it when there's a template and you have to then apply it to every single family. It doesn't take into account their cultural background, their health literacy, what funding's available for them, where they live, how many people are supporting them in their life. It isn't black and white medicine. Medicine is not black and white. It's all, there's always been an art aspect to it. And when it comes to looking at child protection, you really have to use that because there isn't going to be a scientific, purely scientific approach that's going to work here. So then there are scientific interventions and it might be appropriate. But what we need is people sitting around a table who are professionals, who bring with them a weight of experience and understanding and understand the evidence basis of each of their respective sectors and collaborate to come up with an individualized plan for that child. And sometimes it can just be very common sense things like a health visitor needs to support this family a bit more often because they struggle around this child's poor sleep. It might be that a paediatrician needs to intervene because this child is crying a lot and needs a health assessment to determine why this child is so distressed. And it could be as simple as something as like cow's milk protein intolerance. It, it won't be the same plan for mm. each child. It just depends on what the factors are, what the triggers are. Yeah. And who the family are. I guess what I'm trying to say is how does the community community MDT approach improve right. outcomes for things because I find that the thing that's difficult and when it comes to child protection is figuring out is this child safe enough to stay with this family or yep. is it better that they are out of this family so that's as doctors that's not our decision we don't do safety and I think that's where the lines get blurred a bit where we don't want to hang it hand over to statutory agencies like police and orangutamariki because we feel like the family have trusted us and then we hand them over to this agency and we don't fully trust those agencies agencies. We remain working in silos and we don't get to know each other and we don't get to see how each other works and we don't collaborate and we don't at the moment. It's really hard. I would be very much about staying in my lane and I would give a health overview on that child and I would be happy to talk about the health impact on that child of the abuse or the risk. But then when it comes to coming up with a safety plan, we are not statutory agencies. That's police and ordering a tamariki. Because the other part of child protection, one of it is the abuse part that we talk about a lot, but I think yeah. the other under talked about thing is neglect yes. right which is kind of a little bit harder to identify as well because what yes. is neglect versus what is just yes. under-resourced families absolutely you're 100 percent right and one of my favorite things that I used to ask in the course is out of the four different types of abuse that a child could experience so physical emotional sexual and neglect that out of all of those types of abuse what do we know has the biggest health impact later on in life which one is associated with poorer brain development, poorer emotional regulation, behaviour change, an increase in inflammatory disorders, that kind of thing later on in life. And it's actually neglect. And the only people that can really diagnose neglect are doctors because it is about identifying a pattern of behaviour. And the 
problem with neglect is it goes on for so long until it's identified. And we know through lots of studies, particularly done in the States, that we underdiagnose neglect frequently. No doctor likes to call it out because, again, it takes a lot of work. You've got to do your detective work and get all of the child's notes and realise that no health plans have been put in place. This child isn't gaining weight. They're not thriving. They're not doing well at school and collate all the information together. I definitely think there needs to be a whole relook at how we approach neglect in our society and how we deal with it as a health service. I guess the issue is how much is neglect a solely health issue versus a systems economic yeah. issue? Yeah. Because, yeah. like, so I've been a doctor for five and a half years. I think so much has changed from when yeah. I first started yeah, yeah. to now. I did pediatrics since I was a second year doctor. Yeah. And I think the way that we did stuff then. It's so different to how we're doing stuff now because 100%. we just can't. So much of the issues that are happening with kids and families is so much more to do the environment now, I think. Yeah. Everyone's stressed. Mm. Kids are stressed. Mm. Parents are not doing so well economically. Yeah, Children yeah. are like not getting the stimulus that they need from their parents. Yeah. The basics of raising a child is just to keep them safe and loved, right? And so if you focus on those two things, you're unlikely to ever be accused of neglect. When we see neglect in a paediatric setting, we see children who have not been able to access the health service for significant medical problems. They're not receiving treatment and it's having long-term impacts on them. They're not going to school. This isn't about targeting families who are from low socioeconomically deprived areas. You can be loved and well looked after on very little. And I think we all recognise that. It's more about, are your parents advocating for you to thrive in life? And are you able to achieve the same goals as other people within your community, other peers within your community, in your class, in your ECE? Or are you behind on your weight, your development? Are you getting your eczema treated? Are mm. you getting infections treated? Are you ending up in hospital every single time you're getting a chest infection? And I think what happens is we end up seeing those instances as, as one-offs rather than episodes and we make excuses for the parents it must be very hard for them and you no know, maybe maybe they've got five other children maybe they just didn't notice and that's fine as a one-off and we're not here to put parenting under a microscope but when we're seeing episodes like this it should we should be able to capture it easily in health but we don't because again our systems don't talk and I don't know if this child's seen five GPs or one GP or no GPs because I can't look on the system and see whether they've seen a GP. I mean, it's just basic mm. things like that. I guess sometimes where I just feel a little bit powerless to know whether, like what to do, right? Like I just mm. remember seeing this kid, I think he was like 10 or something in the emergency department and he was brought in by his mum because he had some tummy pain mm. talking to them further. And I, that's what I mean by the whole, like I feel like healthcare has changed. It's so much more of it is social issues because when you talk to them a bit further actually the mum's having an acute mental health crisis her new partner yes. is next door in the emergency department having an yes. acute mental health crisis yes. they don't have any food at home yeah because there was some change with their like yes. winds support or something yes. like that so the money yes. went in and then they went for rent and then there's no money left yes. for food and you're like yes. oh my goodness this, it's just awful. ah what do you do awful but the impact on the child is still the same I say this all the time 
good people do bad things, right? And so it's not up to me in medicine to judge whether the parenting is good or bad. That's not my job. My job is to look purely at the child and look at the impact on the child and advocate for the child. And if that means me, then making sure that mum and dad have good mental health support in order so that they can support their child and raise him up and notice his needs because their needs are finally met, then that's my job to do that. It's not my job to judge parenting. It's my job to just look at the child and go, "What? Well, how can we change the impact of all of this on you? And I used to call it the second betrayal of the child when you see a child that's been abused or neglected and the first questions my colleagues used to ask or even lay people are oh my god how could that parent have done that to their child oh my god I could never do that and everybody starts talking about the alleged perpetrator or the person that's responsible for the abuse and everybody then forgets to have a conversation about the child I'm not interested in the perpetrator there are probably great interventions for people who abuse children. That's not my job as a paediatrician. I don't know who does that job. There are very few people that are in that field, but there are interventions. But I have to stay in my lane. I know about children. (laughs) So it's just about looking at that child and going, what can I do to advocate for you right now? What would make your life better? Okay, mum and dad are struggling. How can I get them more support? And keeping the judgment out of it. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is about the first thousand days of life. Like yes. How important is that? Oh, this is my favorite subject. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to condense this into a two-minute soundbite. Yeah, the first 1,000 days of life, as we've identified through decades of research, critical in terms of your emotional building blocks. So what happens to you in your first 1,000 days of life determines how you emotionally regulate, how your behavior is determined, how you function in relationship and whether you can rupture and repair in relationship. It determines your physical well-being and your mental well-being in a lifelong way. And we've identified that from both ends of the spectrum. Scandinavia, they know how to raise their children. They have the best outcomes in terms of mental health well-being for their children, physical health impacts later on in life, access to tertiary education. They just get ticked gold star. And they have identified early interventions have caused that really good trajectory throughout life. And then when you look at the other end of the spectrum, the research that came out from the States, and I I love to Tautoko Nadine Burke-Harris, who is, I don't know whether she's still the Surgeon General of California, but she researched about 10, 15 years ago, looking at adverse childhood events. 
And she identified, along with her whole team of researchers, that there were about 10 really bad traumatic events that could happen to a child that would have a long-term impact on their health. And if they were exposed to any of those events in the first 1,000 days, it had a lifelong impact. And that, to us as health professionals, what that looks like is if you do not protect children and identify adverse events early on, it gives them a lifelong higher risk of inflammatory disorders, autoimmune disorders. It triggers latent genes like giving you type 2 diabetes earlier. stress, isn't it? That it's just stress the impact mm. of stress on your body. <clears throat> but then it keeps genetically encoding for the rest of your life. So by investing and funding and concentrating on the first 1,000 days, you could save so much money, I know, so much impact on the health. I'm like, you know, we need to put more money at the start, the yeah. start of life. You get so much more bang for your buck, making sure that pregnant women have all the access to free healthcare. I could not say that more. <laughs> so I was talking about how Scandinavia, they really are the legends when it comes to looking at childhood and how to support people in early childhood. They did this project that started in 2019. Now, all these countries, Finland, Sweden, Norway, all the Nordic countries came together to create policies that transcended politics, transcended their national politics. So they did this three-year collaborative project looking at the first 1,000 days of life, right? And first of all, what they did is they identified what interventions do we already have that we give to people in the first 1,000 days. Then they looked at how effective are these interventions, newsflash, there aren't many evidence-based interventions in the first 1,000 days of life because it's hardly studied, right? It's not an area that's easy to study. And then they came up with policy recommendations for that first 1,000 days in life. So they recognized if they poured all their funding and all their attention in the first 1,000 days of life, they didn't need to put the funding anywhere else later on. And I would just love to see that approach here in Aotearoa. We don't even have to do a cross-country collaboration. And we demonstrated in the pandemic that New Zealand came out in full force that when it comes to communicating health issues nationally during the pandemic, New Zealand did really well. Maybe a little bit too well, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, maybe too well. But what we did demonstrate is because we're a small, intimate country, if you include everybody in the health conversation, People will get on board and they'll do it. And I would love to see that kind of conversation happening around the first 1,000 days because currently there's like tumbleweed. So I guess from your point of view, from child protection and paediatrics, and this is what I'm finding working in paediatrics, is that a lot of what we do is reactive kind yeah. of thing because that's our job is to identify something that's already there and yeah. just do something mm-hmm. with it. And the more I do medicine especially in paediatrics, the more I'm recognising the social determinants of health. Mm. <laughs> it's also making me think, mm. oh, should I do public health or something? Because I'm like, <laughs> there's so much that we can do to yeah. prevent because yeah. you, you have all these babies that are born into this world yes. healthy and yes. then we let the world around them make them unhealthy. Yes. Yes. I just think it's absurd. So I really want to see better funding for things like midwifery oh, or GP care. That um, completely. Like, yeah. One of the things is that we don't have in New Zealand really is much funding for like 
parents or oh, primary I mean, caregivers? This is what the Scandinavian study talked about. They talked about equity and they raised equity as the biggest issue in terms of applying the first 1,000 days principle to society. And what they said is all antenatal care should be free. Women should not have to pay for their scans, their blood tests, any aspect of pregnancy should be covered, vitamins, it should all be free. Then your access to antenatal courses and parenting courses should all be free. There should be parenting courses aimed at both genders, not just the mum. So one of the equity principles was looking at gender equality and gender equity. So that means that when there's a health intervention, both parents have to be present. Because I think it's absurd that it's like what the statutory was, like six months oh, for like the primary caregiver of paid, yes. quote unquote, and then two weeks for the other yes. one, unpaid. Yeah. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And the assumption that you can do it by yourself. We yeah. all know it takes a village to raise a child. We all talk about the importance of whānau here in, in New Zealand, and yet what are we doing to support whānau in the first 1,000 days? Nothing. Are there any free parenting courses available if your child is a baby and you're trying to navigate what's normal development and what's not? Plunkett have pulled back and have a problematic history anyway. And we've got to also look Ooh, at... Tell me more about this problematic history that I don't know about. I think somebody... Bit, better place than me could talk about <laughs> okay. the that Plunkett has in the past had a very had, has been responsible for bad interventions when it comes to the Māori community and we've looked to that in terms of encouraging breastfeeding and looking at what kind of interventions they've suggested so one of my big bugbears is as health professionals, we should only be suggesting evidence-based practices when it comes to infant feeding and infant sleep. We should not be offering our opinion on how a baby should sleep or feed based on how we raise our own children or how we were raised. We are not being paid to give our opinion and it would not fly in any other aspect of medicine. When we look at the research, and I'll raise up Australia here because actually it's over on this side of the world that we've come up with the most scientific research around looking at normal baby sleep patterns, what they've identified is it's exactly like development. So there's a wide range of normal, right? So it's a bit like you and I know that an eight-month-old baby can be perfectly capable of taking their first independent step, and that's normal, but so can an 18-month-old, right? So both of those babies are normal. They can both grow up to become Olympic athletes when they're older. This does not have any long-term impact on them, but and they're the extreme ends of the scale. It's the same with sleep. Some babies don't need much sleep, and some babies need a lot, and a lot of it's genetically programmed. I hate these sleep programs that say, your baby needs to be awake for two hours then you need to play with your baby for a bit like sleep you, training and all that kind of stuff yeah sleep training has its place so it's not a case that I'm saying all sleep training is bad but what I'm saying is a one-size-fits-all program mm. for all babies sets most parents up for failure yeah, and it, it isn't supported by science yeah. and with the feeding thing what I've noticed when I've been working in places with like young mums and 
mm. young babies and all that is that there's so much pressure on mums to like breastfeed, breastfeed, which yeah. I understand. Like I understand yes. the science behind it, right? The antibodies, sure. the connection, the mother-baby connection and all that. But it's stressful, man. It looks stressful. So the reason it's stressful is because we don't put in the support and the funding in the first 1,000 days of life. It wouldn't be stressful if you had somebody there to support <laughs> yeah. you. So I hate this sort of setting people up for failures. So it, the onus becomes all on the mum mm. then. It's, oh, you need to breastfeed because we all know as a society that's best. So get on and do it. But we're not going to provide you with any professionals, any support. We're just going to tell you to do it because that always works, doesn't it? Because lactation consultants would be very helpful, but they're not, there's not heaps of those around, are there? No, exactly, exactly. And why aren't there heaps of them around? And why aren't they paid more? I run a clinic called Milk and Honey Pediatrics, and I run that clinic with another doctor called Dr. Abby Basket, who's incredible. And between the two of us, we tried to set up effectively like a mother and baby clinic within the public system, right? And I remember breastfeeding my four-month-old baby in this very high-level meeting where I was asked to put forward a business plan within three days uh, and present it to all the top level bosses like CEO, the head of midwifery, the head of finance and everything for, from then ADHB, it's now Tufata Order, to come up with why this should be a good idea and would this economically be viable. We never received a response. It was days and days of work on very little sleep with a small baby and we never received a response. And I always joke that if I'd have come in and asked for half a million dollars for some fancy, robotic, scientific machine that would help male elite athletes play better sport, I would have just been gifted it the next day. But because I was talking about mothers and babies, the system is inherently misogynistic and it doesn't prioritise us. We never received even an email response to thank us for attending the meeting or a response to say why they were not going to fund us. And Abby had tried for 10 years prior to that to try and get any form of a clinic that addressed the first 1,000 days of life in Starship. And it was it just met obstacle after obstacle. And I just don't think we'd have met that if we'd have been talking about any other aspect of medicine. What made you move from public health, public medicine, to private? Because for me, it's, I've always worked in the public health system. Yeah. Not that long, <laughs> but always yeah, been yeah. there. And then there's that part of me that's for the people. I don't want to charge money and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. You know, bright eye, bushy tail. I'm here to save lives and yes. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what brought you to do that? Because obviously you're still doing pediatric medicine, but now yeah. in the private space. So yes. what made you leave public? Yes. Just to, as a small caveat, I haven't completely left public. I do work in ED at Starship and I dip my toe in just to make sure that I'm still aware of the system and I'm keeping abreast of the, the guidelines. And But I left because I really passionately believe there needs to be a clinic out there for the first 1,000 days of life and we couldn't make it happen in the public system despite our best efforts. We need something to show people the demand. I almost want to scream at the health service and say, this is the type of clinic that should exist in public. Let us demonstrate to you why it's needed, why it works, and look at the demand. Your community's crying out for it, and it's 
their tax dollars that should be paying for it. I want to be able to practice medicine because it's fun and I really enjoy babies and toddlers. And I really believe that's where we should be. They should be like our shining examples in society. We should be like raising them up as the most precious thing. They're taonga. And we should be demonstrating that. I don't want to be told, oh, please see this baby in 15 minutes. It's just a quick issue. I want to sit with that family for as long as they want me to sit with them and follow them up for as long as they need the support because this time is so precious. And to balance out my guilt or to balance out my social conscience, we do have a, we do run a pro bono clinic. So for marginalized groups who cannot afford our care, we pay for their private care and they come into our clinic and we see them and we have a commitment to grow that arm of the clinic in recognition. But what we're hoping to do is at least be able to practice medicine with the freedom of not being told what to do and what structures to follow. The pro bono Mm. part of the clinic, how does somebody access that? You just need to go onto our website and just say that you'd like to access it. We're also affiliated with WINS. So if you're part of WINS, we've got a special number. Go to your case manager and they can talk to us and pay for your care. The wait times in public are quite long. So if you've got a five-week-old baby who's not feeding properly, you can't wait months and months for a general paediatric appointment. In those circumstances, we would definitely prioritise those marginalised groups and WINS would probably fund care on that basis. And it's important for me to say that probo no clinic for me that's a social initiative so it's not a charity it's a redistribution of equity and although that's not doesn't fall to me as an individual I represent healthcare I don't want you to see that as an act of charity that's an act of what you deserve if you're from a marginalized group wow incredible Let's hope that grows and grows. We'll be doing a fundraiser later on in the year and be inviting lots of doctors and then we'll hopefully increase what we call our honeypot. So the honeypot pays for that care. Amazing, amazing. (laughs) And where do you see Milk and Honey going in the future? So what I'd like to see is for us to expand. So we've got, at the moment, we've got lots of paediatric specialists, child psychologists will be joining us, dieticians, physios, really holistic paediatric team but what I'd really like to grow is the women's health aspect as we have lots of mamas that need attention and I know it sounds like a cliche but happy mummy equals happy baby often or happy I believe that yeah yeah, happy happy parents equal happy baby and so I'd like to see a portion of our clinic grow so we need some adults Physicians, we need some GPs who specialise in women's health to come in and do the mama package. We're very fortunate to be getting soon a perinatal psychiatrist joining us who's really passionate about providing good mental health interventions when women are pregnant. So that's one arm I'd like to grow. I would love, love, love then for obviously our honeypot to grow and our social initiative to grow and that for other doctors to feel inspired by that clinic and emulate it around the country so that we can show the importance of the first 1,000 days. I'd love to see lots of clinics focusing on the first 1,000 days. So you're saying that if everyone copied your model, you'd be cool with it? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like them to say they're affiliated with me. I see. (laughs) But, But more altruistically, what I really want to do 
is demonstrate to Fatou Order that there's a need for this. I would happily give up private practice and do this in public if you funded me to do it. We run as a not-for-profit. This is not about me doing private medicine and creating a bigger and bigger profit. All our profit gets fed back into our honeypot. So this is just about me functioning as a paediatrician in the best way I would like to function. And I can't do that in the public service. Nobody is willing to make radical change to those systems. There's so much lip service and not enough practical change. I'll give you an example. We have demonstrated ad nauseum that we are failing Māori and Pacifica, right? In every branch of healthcare, we are saying that, right? And so instead what we're doing is we're labelling names in Tadeo, we're calling things in healthcare in the Tadeo language, we're trying to encourage healthcare professionals to be more interested in Tadeo. That is not what the Māori community are asking us to do. I've They're heard not... this saying it's called a Pākehā house with Māori curtains. Yes! <laughs> it really is. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for me to be part of that. What Māori are saying is, please can you make up for all the failings? So therefore, the practical solution would be put them to the top of the operating list. Practical approaches. Give free antenatal care to all Māori and Pacifica. Don't make Māori and Pacifica pay for pregnancy scans. Don't make Māori and Pacifica pay for to attend an antenatal course. Increase midwives in their community. Pay them more. Pay Māori midwives more. <laughs> no money, money. It's money <laughs> time. It's money and time they want. They don't want you to be forced to embrace their culture. Their culture is so beautiful. They want you to embrace it if you love it, but they don't want you to do that in the healthcare setting and then still give them shit, isn't it? Yeah. shit healthcare. It's yeah. really, it's really insulting. Yeah. I just, I don't want to be part of it. I really don't. Yeah. I think I'm, it's the thing is a lot of good doctors, good healthcare professionals leaving public, not because they don't want to keep serving the public, but no. because they're just tired of working in a system that's breaking them and not allowing us to actually do the good that we want to do and then leaving to go to private practice because that's where we can see ourselves doing what we want to do. Going into private medicine was also a way of just giving myself some breathing space to top up my cup so that perhaps one day I can go back in and fight. Because it is exhausting. It's exhausting. I see all these issues, systemic issues from IT systems to protocols and how we do our training, how we do our supervision and how we treat each other. It's just simple things like communicate our communication systems are just diabolical and it's exhausting because I just I see it every day I can't like ignore it and I feel like I yeah it's not to fault people that I work with but I think a lot of people I'll just say a lot of other people I think are more tolerant than I am I think a lot of other people are more like oh the system's shit but I'm just gonna ignore it and just plot on and keep doing my work and I'm still doing my work but I also can't stop pointing stuff out I can't stop being like this is wrong never this is wrong never stop Nina it is hard because sometimes the response I get is yeah it's pretty crap but you just got to do the best that you can for the patient in front of you and I'm like like and you're just telling them but this would be better for this patient if we change this exactly so you're providing a solution I think as well, one of one of the toxic aspects of our medical culture currently is that we tend to try and please our boss above. If you're a junior in training, you're trying to please your consultant. If you're a consultant, you're trying to please the managers and the clinical director. We forget that we're there to serve the public. And yet we're not being patient-centered a lot of the time. And we are not enabled to be patient-centered because of our structures. Yeah. Well... <laughs> I don't know how I get 
just a very sad, just keep talking about it. Sad ending. <laughs> How can we make this more uplifting? How can we make okay. it more uplifting? Right. So it's probably only time for one last question. What's your favorite book you've read of oh, all time? Oh my god, there's so many. I'm. Do you know what? I'm currently reading Lessons in Chemistry, which I think lots of people are enjoying at the moment. I'm really enjoying that. And my colleague, Abby Basket, who knows me really well, she gave me this beautiful book recently, which I highly recommend everybody read, called Assembly. And I have forgotten the author. It's a very short book, but it covers a lot of the issues that we were discussing today, but in a really clever, innovative way. And this particular book is a really easy story to read. I think that's probably been my favourite book that I've read recently. But I have to say, I am a closet murder mystery <laughs> fan. So I'm big. I've read all of Agatha Christie's books. I've been on the Orient Express train. I'm a real the full- George Glass Onion. But yes. Oh my God, wasn't yes. that great? <laughs> oh my God. I love I, anything that's murder mystery. I'm there for it. I love Very yeah, morbid. For, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's my kind of closet guilty pleasure. Um, I definitely recommend the Thursday Murder Book Club for Senior Citizens Trying to Solve Crime by Richard Osman. See, I do Tartoko some old white men and he wrote that book. <laughs> and really, it is really, it's a really amusing read in it. It's anti-ageist because they're four elderly people in an old people's home solving crimes. I really love that. But yeah, I can't pick a favourite book. I'm an avid reader. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Carmen. Thank you. <laughs> Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.